lives. When our culture thinks it can decide its gender or change our gender through extensive surgeries and hormone treatments and all of that stuff, and all of this is contrary to biology, and laws of our land are passed that disallow any disagreement with one who's so deceived and confused, when it's considered hate speech to not affirm a person who wants to be identified contrary to their biology, this is insane. This is madness. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it has to be said. Now, why do I mention this here? It's Father's Day. But who is a father? I did a lot of background reading on, on popular culture and what, what today's culture says a father is, and it, it has no meaning whatsoever. To them, anybody can be a father. Whoever identifies as a father. Can a woman be a father? Can a woman who identifies as a man be a father? Well, it depends who you are in answering that, right? Scripture is very clear. Reality, reason is clear. But we're, we don't live in an age of reason. But the church needs to. You see, we are the anchor for the culture because where else are they going to see the truth? Where else are they going to see the light of God, you see? To begin with, in this study of what is a father, I whipped out my phone. And I said, phone? What's a father? Right? Well, this is what it said. A man in relation to his child. That was the whole answer. A man in relation to his child. That's a good start. It's got the right gender. Mentions the child and in relation to the child, so that's all good. If you were to go further on into uh, Wikipedia, which you can't trust, I understand, but you know you can get some samples from there. It speaks of one who is the originator. The origin of another is a father. And that's the noun. The verb form can be said, he is the cause, he is the cause of pregnancy resulting in the birth of a child. He fathered three children. That's all good. And it's just crazy that in the, in the insanity of our day, the insanity of our times, it demands that we have to explain these things, or at least I can't assume, I probably can here, but you just can't assume when you're out amongst people that that is what they think about a father. Listen to Genesis 4, 25. Abraham had relations, or he knew intimately, his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Genesis 5, 1 through 4. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, now listen, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And the day, days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. 
Bible mentions father who had relations with woman, and the result is a child. So what am I saying? Today, we are recognizing biological men who are fathers, okay? Fathers. This is Father's Day. These are men who are either in a father role of adopted. You could be a, a, a father by adoption. You could be a stepfather. You could be the spiritual father of somebody. You could be an adopted, a mother who is mother by adoption, uh, a stepmother, or considered a spiritual mother. All this to say, fatherhood, a father, obviously, is one who is in the position of having begotten one or is in the role of authority over those who are under him in his relationship to a child. They are males. And females, mothers are females and fathers are males, as created by God. So today we focus on biological males who have children by either adoption, foster, step, or begotten. Today is Father's Day. With all this social, cultural chaos around us, the family continues to be under the attack of the evil one. God is the creator of the family. He's the grand designer of its purpose and function. He has designed the roles and the responsibilities within the family. If God has a design and he has made it known, you can be rest assured that the enemy has a counterfeit. He has a deception and a lie. He will come against that. Now, this is nothing new. This, is, this began back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, and it seems to have continued on to this day. And I would say that in our culture, I think it's even ramped up some. The attacks come in many different forms, all the same goal, to destroy the family unit as designed by God. A male and a female is the beginning of a family who are married Children begotten in that family just add to the family. This is God's design from the very beginning. But Satan has come and attempts to destroy the family as God has designed it in order to cause us misery, but even more importantly to Satan, it is to cause dishonor to God. Now, the different attacks that come. Now, I'm laying this out because I feel burdened for to do this because I want to, at the end of our time together, show how the Bible elevates fatherhood and what he says about it and how important it is. So all these, all these cultural revolutions that we are experiencing, they're attacks on God, ultimately. For instance, male chauvinism. That's not, that's not from God. Men who dominate their homes, men who are petty dictators, little Napoleons running around their homes with an iron fist, and wives and children are merely property to be used for their pleasure and their use. That's not from God. So male chauvinism is not from God. Feminism is not from God. That is to reject God's original design and to rebel against the roles and responsibilities within a home as designed by God as recorded in Scripture. The feminism which wants to elevate woman over man to get out from under what is called oppressive biblical roles. That's not from God. Male chauvinism, 
radical feminism, any feminism along those orders. We're not talking about equal pay and equal work. We're talking much more than that. Divorce, abortion, pornography. That's all an attack on the family. That's all from the evil one. Child rights. That's been happening since the 20s and maybe even before, but the UN has codified that. And it's come into the United States, and uh, there's a law passed, I think, last week that parents do not have the right to keep their underage child from having transgender processes if they don't affirm what the child is saying they want to be. So So the state could allow the child to have surgeries that scar and and forever change them and take hormones against a parent's wishes. That's insanity. And that's a direct assault on the family of God. That's a direct assault on God. Because it it, uh, is against the family that he's designed. The homosexual movement is a direct assault on God's creation and design, obviously. Because if you all became homosexuals, you're the last generation. Right? You, you, you can't go on, you see. Um, that's from the devil. Transgender is just a further expression of this attack from the evil one on God and the family. It's a continuation of the rebellion in allowing our children underage in particular to mutilate themselves so that many become sterile and, and it's irreversible. Those are just those are not isolated things. Those are those are all a cohort of ideas and thoughts spawned by the evil one whose goal is to dishonor God and to destroy humanity. Father's Day is a big deal. Cuz it's a dr- Father's Day the way the Bible puts it forward, fatherhood is a direct assault on the devil. It's a direct assault on culture that that stands against God. So fatherhood is a big deal. Now think of this. Some statistics that have to do when fathers are absent. And this is not even Christian fathers. This is just fathers in general. And how important fathers and mothers in a home are for our culture. In the Texas Department of Corrections, 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. 85%. Seven out of ten youth that are housed in state-operated correctional facilities, including detention and residential treatment, come from a fatherless home, says the U.S. Department of Justice. 39% of students in the U.S. from the first grade to their senior year of high school, 12 years, do not have a father at home. Children without a father are four times more likely to be living in poverty than children with a father, says NPR of all places. Children from fatherless homes are twice as likely to drop out from high school than children who have a father in their lives. You can see just from those that sample how important it is for a father to be present in his family, in his home. So fathers, can I say, you here, I salute you. I salute you. So we want to look at what the Bible says, what what God says about the matter. 
And I want this word that we're going to finally look at here to be greatly encouraging to you, even an exhortation to us, because your family needs you, your community needs you, your church needs you. Okay? To begin with, Scripture, which is God's inerrant, inspired self-revelation that is his own self-disclosure, he reveals himself on the pages of Scripture. He calls himself, among other things, Father. He identifies himself as Father. We know that from within the Trinity. He is the Father, and Jesus is identified as the Son. The Father sent the Son. As the Father, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me. Um, when the fullness of time came, God sent his Son. At the baptism we, we hear the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Secondly, Scripture sees God as Father of all people by creation in Acts 17. He is just by, by human nature, we, in, in a sense, He is the Father of all human beings in, in Acts 17. It says that. He's called the Father of Israel. Israel is called His firstborn Son. That's in the Old Covenant. Israel as a people is seen as God's Son, and God, Yahweh, is seen as the Father of Israel. But more importantly, and especially for us, He is the Father of all those who place their faith in Christ. Scripture says we are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Okay. So all that to say, Scripture reveals God as Father. I can say by the authority of Scripture that I am a son of God, and he is my father. So a father then is a, has a distinct role, a distinct function within the Trinitarian relationship, which we won't look at today. He has a distinct role to his people as father and we as his children. So then now we as human fathers, we too have distinct roles and functions and responsibilities within our relationships, within our home. Okay? So then the charge and the need for today is for godly fathers, for godly fathers. It is for fathers to carry out their divinely ordained functions in a godly manner, godly before we move on, godly father, godliness. I mean, I read it a lot. I hear about it a lot. People will say things about it. But what does that mean? If we want godly fathers, I think we need to at least start there. What does that mean? What is a godly father? Well, godly speaks of an attitude which translates into an action. And that action is to be like God. It speaks of a devotion to God. A devotion to God, that's a, a, a mindset, a heart set. A devotion to God in my heart that leads to acts which, which resemble Him. It is to obey His word, and to obey His word is then to resemble the one who gave the word, you see. And a devotion to God is an attitude that shows up in an action. So a godly father is a father who is like God, simple enough. A godly father, then, in Scripture, is described with this. I have a couple labels to lay on us, guys, who are fathers. 
A godly father, first and foremost, is a follower. Is a follower. And second, he's a loser. <laughs> People, a follower and a loser. What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, in Luke 9, 23 and 24, saying this, The Son of Man must suffer, suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, now listen here, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. First and foremost, a godly father is one who has taken up his cross and takes up his cross daily and follows Jesus Christ. He is a follower. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, it says it like this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So first and foremost, the godly father is a follower. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has taken up his cross. He has seen the worth of Jesus. He's been conquered by grace. The Holy Spirit has opened his eyes to see Christ glorious, and he has set aside all to follow him. He's a follower. His direction is toward Christ. All right. But he's also a loser. In those same passages, listen to what he says here after he says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. In this life, he looks like a loser because he's lost his self. His, his, his fleshly, self-centered self has been lost for the sake of Christ for future gain. But in this life, it is loss. The godly father is a follower of Christ, and he has counted the cost and has lost everything for him. You see? It says in Matthew 10, after he says, take up his cross and follow after me, he says, he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So in this life, we lose our life, but it's not ultimate loss. It's for a future gain. We're, we are believing in the promise of God that there is great gain to be had if we lose our life now. So a godly father believes the word of God, believes the gospel, is taken up and overcome by grace, sees Christ as glorious. He has been conquered by the spirit of God. He's been granted faith and repentance and trust. He has taken up his cross to follow Jesus Christ. He has counted his law. His life is lost here and now for the sake of future gain. He is a follower and a loser. <laughs> Philippians 3 says it like this. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He is a follower and a loser. Five, five, final thing to be said godly fathers as followers and losers in that way 
We have our, our, our mindset is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where he says, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So godly fathers, in all our imperfections, in all the sin that yet we battle and walk in this life with, we have been conquered by grace. We are followers of Jesus. We have counted our life as lost in view of Christ Jesus and his glory and in the expectation of future gain. And our life shows that to our children. Our life shows that to our wives. Our life shows that to our neighbors. Not in perfection, but in direction. Because you are following. If you're following, you're going a certain direction, you see. Okay. Now, as we, as a lover of Christ and, and seeking to honor him, and to obey him in all ways, and to, 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 to follow him as our Lord. The scripture commands us as Christians, and I'm applying to fathers, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're to walk in the Spirit, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And this then is the power to do this godly fatherhood in our homes as a follower and a loser, this following and losing shows itself in our homes as a leader. So as a follower and a loser, we are also a leader. That's interesting. We are a leader. We're not a dictator, but a servant leader. You know, the Romans had a word, patria potestas, which is to say the power of the father. And in first century Rome... The father had the power, ultimate power, over the members of his household, over his family. He could put his wife to death if he found something that caused him displeasure. He had the authority when they had uh, a baby and it was a girl because girls were costly. They couldn't work as hard as guys. They're not as valuable. A father would either do this or do this, a newborn. And if it was to down... They had to get that infant out of that home, and what they would do in the first century is go lay the babies on the steps at the temple before Christians start coming along, while dogs would come along and take care of the infants. But when Christian, Christianity started taking over in Rome, the Christians would come and rescue those kids. But my point is this. The father had ultimate authority in his home to the degree of who could live and who would die. But Christianity is different. Christianity tells me that I'm following Christ and I'm lo I've lost my life here and this shows up in my home, in my relationship in my home as a leader. I am a servant leader in my home. I am to be, right? We are the head of our home, Scripture says, by God's design, but it's to be as a Christ-like servant of my home, not as a petty tyrant like Caesar. Leadership, then, according to Scripture, is to be out in front being an example, not behind driving, but out in front as an example. That example that fathers are to have, godly fathers, as they follow Christ, okay, 
Think of that. If I'm following Christ, those following me would be following Christ as well, you see. And it's a servant leadership. This servant leadership has to do with influence. It has to do with influencing those under my care. It has to do with imitating God. It's, ha- it's imitating Christ. So this servant leadership, our leadership, is an imitation of God, you see. Now, it's, 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 this command is given to all Christians, but in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, and we've looked at this when we were in Ephesians, but listen to what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. All Christians are to do this, but obviously it applies to fathers. Our leadership, then, is to be mimicking God. We, we mimic him as a child mimics the father. He goes on to say, what does that imitation look like? If, if this godly father is leading his home, what, is, what does that look like? In the next verse in Ephesians 5, 2, it says it like this. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. So then, this imitation of God is coming to a finer point is to live in love that is like Christ. The love that was expressed on the cross is the imitation of God that Christians, slash I'm going to bring it to us fathers, who are following Christ, we would be showing this kind of love in our homes. It is a self-sacrificial love. And, and of course, the command to the husband in Ephesians 5, right, 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church, you see, and gave himself up for her. So godly fathers are those who are followers and losers and leaders, and our leadership is like Jesus Christ. It's, our leadership is an imitation of God, and primarily in love, Sacrific- self-sacrificing love. That's amazing. 1 John 4 says it like this. By this the love of God was manifest to us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross is the ultimate pattern of Christian love. Obviously. Fathers... In our homes, let the cross be the driving motivation and goal of your relationships in your home. It's to be, that is to imitate God. The next verse in 1 John 4.11, listen to what it says. After it just explained this is love, it says this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, if that's just, if that's, If that's true here, certainly that's true in my home, you see. So then, God's pattern, God's example of love for me, Father, is then to be the example of my treatment, love of my home, okay? And this is to lead 
to lead by love, just like Christ, just like God. Now think with me. I'm moving on here. Um, our, Our leadership, fathers, and our example, our godly example in coming closer into our home is to be expressed specifically to our wives, as we already mentioned earlier, but Ephesians 5.25 would say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this godly example, the imitation of God, think of this, who is watching the fathers carry that out? But the children. You, you, You... as your children grow older and are more aware of surroundings, what are they seeing a father? They're seeing a father who's loving their wife as Christ loves the church. And your children are learning, If say your daughters are learning how to be treated by how you treat your wife. Sons, your, your sons are watching you learning how to treat their future wives by how you treat their mother. That's glorious. That's leadership. That's influence in the home, you see. The need for godly fathers, man, is, is, cannot be overstated, you see. Our love toward our wives is to, to resemble that which God has already loved us. Listen to Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. I remind you of these things, but listen to this word. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies, He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So then, a godly leadership, a follower, loser, and leader who is resembling, mimicking, following God is going to love his wife in this fashion. Obviously not perfectly, it's our goal. But it is the direction of our lives. We are going to be concerned with nourishing and cherishing her. Nourish is the idea of providing what is needed for her well-being. Cherish is the idea of honoring. Cherish is the idea of how, how people treat fragile things like China. Old China. You, you, you're obviously not going to throw it around like your paper plate. That's to cherish. Godly husbands who are following the Savior and imitating God the Father are going to treat their wives in this fashion. And this imitation in the home is what the children are going to learn. What they do with it is between them and God. But they will know this. They will know that this is how Papa loved Mama. This is what they'll see, you see. Colossians 3.19 finally says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Don't be harsh towards them. Which is quite fascinating to me because Paul had never been to Colossians. He doesn't know these people to whom he's writing, but he can with full confidence write that verse. And why would that be? It must be the, uh, it must be the undercurrent of every relationship that husbands naturally, if you will, are embittered against their wives. That must be true because he doesn't know these people, but he can be bold enough to say, hey, knock it off. Stop it. You ever been embittered against your wife? I have. Sinfully. Right? But this is a text that says, hey, knock it off. 
Knock it off. Godly husband, don't be embittered against your wife. We have the grace to overcome that. We have the grace. Now, fathers in the home are followers, losers, and leaders with their wives, we looked at. The next, obviously, relationship that is crucial in the, in, in the father, in the home, obviously, is this love, an example of godlike love and godliness toward our children. And I, if I was to summarize what I looked at in these different verses, that the characteristic of a father's relationship with his children should produce hope. All the discipline, all the training, everything, I think, should, should end up there. Hope. And why do I say that? Well, it would be worth going. Can we go, just so you know I'm getting this from the Bible, go to First Thessalonians chapter 2. And I, it, as I thought about this day, I, I went to all the verses and, and thought through how does the verses in the New Testament in particular describe a father? Okay? Whether it's directly addressing fathers or not, it, like our verse here in chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians, look what it says here. He says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, how as a father would his own children... So I took that and brought that to bear, that it is the natural tendency, it is the relationship of a father with his children, generally speaking, to be of this sort. A father is an exhorter, a father is an encourager, and a father is to implore each one of his children. Verse 12 is the goal of, in this text, right, so that they would walk in a manner worthy, okay? So then, fathers, your relationship to your child, a godly father, first and foremost, in verse 11, I'm going to pick that first word there, exhorting. Exhorting is from the word parakaleo, where we get paraclete, where we get, where we get encouragement, we get to implore, it means to cheer on, it means to comfort, it means to infuse courage, to perform an action, to overcome fear, like a football coach, you know, like a general uh, like a sergeant in, in combat, it is to encourage them. So fathers are naturally exhorters. They are encouragers to their children. Second one um, used there is the word encouraging. This word sp is specifically says that this is word spoken to bring about comfort, to console a troubled soul. It's to give words of guidance to avoid that which is dangerous. And it's, so it's comfort, encouragement, console. So you have exhortation to an action. You have words that bring comfort and console when troubled. The third one in verse 11 is to implore. Implore has the idea to urge someone as a matter of great importance. It is to affirm, ins insist on something, to implore on something. It has this idea that this is very important and I'm imploring you to do this, right? So then, fathers, we, according to that verse, use our words to produce hope godly action from our children, okay? Now, think about this. 
this, this, the, the verse 211 that we looked at, the, the, the exhorting, encouraging, and imploring, those are present participles. We should be constantly taken up with that. That is our action. But we're to do this in such a way that it doesn't destroy them. As Colossians 3.21 commands fathers this way, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So while we're busy exhorting, busy imploring, right, we can do it in such a way that causes exasperation. The word exasperate, don't exasperate, Colossians 3.21, is to cause someone to react in a way that suggests an acceptance of a challenge to arouse or provoke. In other words, it's like, it's like taunting. It has the idea of being so pressured up that you're taunting your child to respond, to react. Um, that's the word here. It's, it's mostly in a bad sense. It can be used in a positive sense where you can stir somebody up to a positive action, but it's basic, most used in a negative sense. It is to provoke, to irritate, into frustration. Okay? Now, this is a present tense with a negative, so Colossians is saying, then the way that grammar is, is to stop an action that's happening. It's not primarily prevent this from happening, it's stop it from happening. It is happening, so stop it, he says. But why should we, in Colossians 3.21, it says don't exasperate, stop exasperating your children. It gives the reason why we should be concerned about that. It says in the text there, so that they will not lose heart. So that they will not lose heart. Think of those precious little souls. They're vulnerable, easily impressed, easily wounded. I know this because I've done all of that. But Scripture says don't do that. To lose heart means to become disheartened, to lack motivation, to become discouraged. It is the idea that there's no hope. So what scripture can, says here is don't exasperate them. That tells me then the words that we are using in our attitude and our motivation, fathers, is to produce hope in our children. Don't be overbearing. Don't constantly nag. Don't belittle them. Don't mock them. Don't challenge them. Encourage them to good. Ephesians 6 4 kind of parallels the Colossians, but listen to this. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Okay? Don't, don't, don't press and push and irritate to the edge until they become angry, an outburst, because there's nowhere else to go, you see. And Ephesians 6, 4 says, in contrast to don't provoke them, don't irritate them to anger, frustration, disheartened. In contrast, bring them up. The word bring them up has the idea of providing nourishment, providing what's needed. 
And it says, bring them up, provide what's needed, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the two part of bring them up, provide what they need in discipline. In discipline, this idea is the discipline of the Lord. It is to feed them on the discipline of the Lord. What does that mean? It has the idea of bring them up, provide Feed them the word of God. Feed them, provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits or behavior. That's the discipline. That's the training. So instead of, notice you're very active. So it's not hands off. I'm not, provide, I'm not provoking to, to frustration. No, you're hands on and you're involved, but the manner, the attitude, and the way, and your goal, everything is to provide hope for this child to live a proper way. Okay? Now, Ephesians 6, 4 says also, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, the training of the Lord, instruction of the Lord. And the last part is the instruction of the Lord, which is this, the word is to put in the mind Nutheteo is to place something in the mind. So instruction is to teach your child by putting these words in their mind. So instead of provoking them to anger, we are instructing them, we are disciplining them. The, the instruction of the Lord has this idea of, of putting in the mind by instruction warnings, okay? In other words, don't get too close to the street because you're going to get run over type of thing. That's a warning. You see, this is that idea. It, it's, it's to counsel about avoiding or stopping an improper attitude or action that's harmful to them, okay? It's to warn them. It was read earlier, but listen to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So obviously you see God is first and foremost in the Father's heart and affections. And then this, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, fathers. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. It's a constant instruction. But see that, see, that can become, if we're not careful, that can become a overbearing, nagging, provoking unto anger. There, is, there has to be a way that that instruction right there and that command can be fulfilled in the, in, in the relationship with the child that it, it produces hope instead of hammering and nagging and constantly thrashing that takes prayerful takes a wife (laughs) to say hey papa you might try something new (laughs) you know proverbs 4 which is obviously the seedbed of instruction it is the manual to help parents raise their children Proverbs 4 says like this, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. And you know Proverbs. It's throughout Proverbs. It's, 
and instruction from a father to a son. So this godly pattern, okay, we're following, we're losing, we're leaning, we're, 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 we're loving our wives sacrificially, we're coming to our children, we're, we're, we're exhorting them, we're, we're encouraging them, we're imploring them, we're instructing them in the discipline of the Lord, we're teaching them the word of God, we're warning them of bad things, and we're, we're uh, encouraging good things, and, and, and we're, 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 we're in their life, and we're, we're, we're showing them Jesus Christ, by our own lives and our love for him. This is why we are concerned for this. In all my imperfections, they still see a man who loves God, you see, and loves them and loves their mother, and he's a pattern, and they see that. They, one thing they ought to be able to say, you know, I don't know about my pop in a lot of different areas, but I know this, he sure liked my mama. <laughs> he sure liked my mama, you know. They shouldn't have any doubt that you like your mama, right, that you like your wife. Shouldn't have any doubt there. So this godly pattern, though, is it comes down to discipline, as it comes down to instruction. Can we go to Hebrews 12? Again, to be like the Father, to be like God, is what we're doing. And God is a disciplinarian, if you will, not in a strict, harsh way, but he is a God of discipline, and he disciplines us because he loves us. And so look at verse four, uh, Hebrews 12, and we can pick it up in verse 5, actually, or 4, 4 works. And let's just walk through this a bit. You have not, resist, not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. So notice how he's talking here. He's talking to Christians, obviously. He's calling them sons, and he's showing the relationship with the father primarily as a disciplinary father. Look at what goes on here. And fathers, earthly fathers, will emulate this. Verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. Fascinating. So obviously right there, the, the evidence of God's affection and love and concern for his son is the discipline and the correction. The exhortation to the son is, is don't, don't be a drama queen. Don't overreact, overreact to this thing. Don't, don't, verse 5 says, don't regard lightly and don't faint when you're reproved by him. It's, this isn't the, the wrath of God. This isn't, the, this isn't the, the, the hatred of God or the hatred of your father. This is actually the love of your father. So don't be a drama queen. Receive it for what it is. It's love. Verse 7, he goes on. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. Isn't that fascinating? For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Yes, we did. And we respected them, indeed. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, finally. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. 
to be like God, and why I was drawn to this text, obviously, the connection, is how the Father treats me as a son is how I am commanded to treat my children, to discipline and love is committed to discipline. You know, a lot of parents are hands-off and they call it love. That's not love. That's complacency. In fact, I think it's probably, the Bible might even call it hatred. To not discipline your child. And I'm not talking physical. I'm not talking whatever it takes to get a corrective order here. To discipline them. Discipline takes work, doesn't it? Constantly listening. You're constantly watching. You have to correct. You got to. It's like just a lot easier to just treat them like my dad treated me. Get out of here. <laughs> right? Just, just go. But it takes effort. It takes commitment. And to do it in a godly fashion, it takes the Spirit of God. Right? It takes the Spirit of God. It takes the Scriptures. A father needs to be follower, be a follow, follower. He needs to be a loser. He needs to be a leader. He needs to be this one who is a discipliner of his children. It's, it is then this, this scourging of every son is an evidence of our love and affection for them. This idea of being like God in our discipline. God gives pictures of himself, little snapshots that encourage me to emulate, if I'm to imitate him. In Deuteronomy 131, and these are just hand-picked snapshots. In the wilderness, Deuteronomy 131, where you saw how the Lord God carried you, this is after 40 years of wandering. Just as a man carries his son in all the way which you walked until you came to this place. What a picture. God carrying his son, Israel, through 40 years of wilderness is a picture of a father's concern and care for his child. Jeremiah 23, 20 says, if, is Ephraim, my dear son, is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, this is rebellious Israel, I certainly still remember him, says God. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. My heart yearns for him. God yearns for Israel. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord, on his son. Fathers, we need to, to, to yearn for our children to be godly, to be right with God. Matthew 6, very familiar. Some of these we looked at on Saturday. It was just affirming to me, yeah, we need to look at these things. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So what is this saying here, right? The, the, the fatherly care of God is exemplified in the feeding of the simple little critters that we just throw away and disregard as birds. Tweety birds. 
That is to be an example of the concern or the level of concern that the Heavenly Father has for us, which is to say to me as a father, I am to be concerned for the physical well-being of my child to such a degree as this. Well, there's more. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Not many. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, speaking to me, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, your father who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Isn't that just amazing? Again, you see the parallel and the connection of heavenly father to children and then earthly fathers to their children. Psalm 103.13 is a glorious text. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So think of the heart of the Father in that passage. And it's kind of a reversed order. As earthly fathers have compassion on their children, that is but a parallel, an example of how Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. You see the connection. Godly fathers emulate God. And God is like this towards his children. Therefore, godly fathers are the same. That's good stuff. Now, compassion. We're almost finished. So, oh, compassion from the Hebrew text. Almost the same as the Greek, but it's to show love. It, it, it's, it's an action, okay? Compassion, there's a heart set. There's a, there's a heart that beats towards this, but the action is the emphasis here. It's to show love. It's to show compassion. It's to show pity. It's to show, express mercy. The opposite of this is a harsh indifference. In other words, no action, you see? Be like someone saying, yeah, I love you, and then, but I'm not concerned for you. I don't show it, you see? A great New Testament illustration is the Good Samaritan, Right? He showed compassion on the beat-up, wounded stranger. Right? So much so that he put him on his animal, took him down to the inn, and paid for his recovery and asked the innkeeper, keep track when I come back, put it to my tab, and I'll pay it. That was compassion shown. That was love shown, you see, in action. This is what this is saying in our Hebrew text, Psalm 103.13, just as the Father has compassion, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This idea of a, tent, a tenderness, it has the idea of a gentleness mixed in here. And the English word compassion, com, C-O-M, passion, to share with, C-O-M, to join in, passion, uh, uh, a feeling, emotion, suffering, okay? So compassion is to join in another person's suffering, is to enter into that suffering. 
Isn't it fascinating that fathers, earthly fathers, enter into the suffering of their children because of love and affection? And what's even greater than that is that that is a parallel to Yahweh joining in our suffering. You see, that's just good stuff. And so the opposite, again, is harsh indifference, no care, no concern, which made me think of this as don't throw away your rebellious, wayward children. Don't throw them away. Don't throw away anybody. But since it's Father Day and picking on fathers, don't throw them away. Always have hope because of God. Which leads me then to, I think, my last passage, but it's Luke 15. Please, can we go to Luke 15? It's worth seeing. And I think it's worth closing with this. Luke 15. This is known as the prodigal son. Probably ill-labeled, but we'll go with it. In Luke 15, you know the sense here. How about uh, if we get down to verse 18, 15, 18 and following, skipping over some of the details, but you know the details. He asked for his inheritance, which is in the culture is say, Papa, I wish you was dead so I could have my money, right? He went and asked for the money. The father is shown to be very gracious and kind and gave him his inheritance before he died. He took the money, the inheritance, went off to a foreign land, and later on in the passage we learn that he spent it on prostitutes. He spent it in whorehouses, his inheritance. Not righteous. But he falls on hard times, and we come to verse 18. He says, I will get up and go to my father. And I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is, this is in the son's mind, in his heart. Verse 20, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father locked all the doors and ran out the backside. No, his father saw him. His father saw him, which is kind of interesting. It could imply that the father probably always gave maybe a longing look down the only exit of the village. Is he, is he anywhere to be seen? Yeah, he goes on his way. He probably did this for many days. But the idea, he saw him. And he knows it's him. And look at his heart in verse 20. The father felt compassion for him. There's this idea of pity, mercy, a love that's deep. It's visceral. The, the, the Greek term here, it's visceral. It's in your guts. It's in your intestines, okay? It's deep down in. He has a visceral response when he sees his son coming down the road. He says in 20, no, look at this. He felt compassion. How the depth of his 
response, the depth of his love, the depth of his compassion is seen in the father's action. In verse 20, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, there's lots of cultural things that are worth noting here, but just know this, that old men, the fathers in this culture, don't run anywhere unless a grizzle bear is chasing them probably, right? But even then, they probably turn around and fight, right? They don't run. It's not considered um, worthy of an older gentleman. Children run. Young men run. Old men walk give commands and stuff, but they don't run, right? They don't run anywhere. It's, it's, it's not proper. It's not proper. But he throws all that aside because he felt compassion, and he ran. Not only ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. I love that picture. <laughs> and he says in 21, he says, and the son said to him, what he rehearsed in the previous verse in 21, he says what he was rehearsing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's repentance. Here's a, here's a, a sorrowful heart for his sin against God and his father. In 22, Notice the father said to the slaves, get out the long rope, we're going to have a hanging tonight. No, he says, slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. What? The best robe? That should be reserved for someone special. Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Clothe him as someone special. Because of his heart, his compassion for his wayward son. The one who's prodigal here is, is the father. Because this is lavish affection. This is lavish compassion for someone who has come back from the dead. Metaphorically. It's, this is our heart. Eh? Don't throw away your children. If they go away, would you pray for them? And put the hound of heaven on them. And you be ready for them to come home. And look what he says in 22. Put the ring on his hand, the sandals on his feet. He goes beyond that. Verse 23, bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let's eat and celebrate. There's a celebration. This is all exemplary of the, of the compassion of the father. The dignified father is willing to be considered undignified because of love for his son. He doesn't care about the audience that's going to judge him for being undignified. He wants to love his son. He's showing. Do you think his son doubts the affection of his father? No, not at all. Verse 24 kind of sums it up and says, This son of mine was dead. He's come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Celebration, celebration. We won't focus on the, the second son for the sake of time. But my point here is, if this is a picture of God the Father in receiving us when we go astray. And 
earthly fathers are to imitate our heavenly father. I'm to have the same affection, the same compassion, the same devotion, even to my son if he runs off to spend time with harlots. If they return and come, we embrace them and kiss them and have a party for them. Amen? Amen. And, and I know the dangers sometimes of preaching Father Day. If you're like me, my sons are grown, my Joshi's gone. This is not to destroy fathers who don't have little kids. This is to encourage for that time you have left towards your older kids. Or if you're so blessed like old Tone, I have six grandbabies, right? And then I can adopt different princesses. I might even adopt a prince or two. I don't know. <laughs> haven't found anybody worth it yet. But <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is to be our heart, beloved, as Christians. But since it's Father's Day, I'm picking on Papa's. This is how our home should be governed. And there's time to repent. There's time to change. There's time to say, Lord, I trust me. I spent a lot of time evaluating and suffering through this text. But God is glorious. <laughs> so I want to close with this. Luke 6:36. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. The takes spirit produced humility and love. Human pride does not lead to mercy. Oh, self-righteous religious people, we're not about to be merciful because that just shows weakness. Indeed. We are to be like our Father in heaven, to be merciful, compassionate, and kind. I have about six bullet points. Fathers, then this. This is my conclusion. You have a huge calling from God, and he is your power source to accomplish that which he's called you to. Walk by the Spirit. As you do, show your family one who loves Christ unreservedly, imitating God the Father in every area. Show them great affection. Let them see it and hear it from you. And if it wasn't your past, make it your present and future. Let them hear it from you. Serve Christ with a passion in whatever capacity. Show a life of gratitude for God's marvelous grace. Let them hear it and see it. Let them see your love and devotion to the Bible and obedience to the Bible. Let them see it. Let them know this is a Bible man. My dad's a Bible man. If that's all they can say about you, that's a good start. Then let them see your love and affection for their mother. 
Let them see that. Vitalik, you have a great opportunity, right? Starting off with a bang. <laughs> Let them see your love and affection for your mom, for the mother. This too, lavish. I like the word lavish. Lavish love and kindness upon them, your children and your family. Always speak words, I like this too, that produce hope. Hope. Because in Christ there is hope. With God there is hope. We want to produce hope in our people, in our family. Let us work on that. Let us pray for that. A couple more. Be forgiving. If you have children, you have all kinds of opportunities to be forgiving. Right? Because they'll forget you, neglect you, abuse you, and all sorts of stuff. You just have to be forgiving. And then maybe even more important than that is seek their forgiveness. Seek their forgiveness. Because think of how important that that is. You are the authority of the home and the leader of the home. And when you're willing to come underneath them to seek their forgiveness because you believe you've sinned against them, do you see the reality of the gospel you're showing them in action? That's powerful. That's powerful. So lavish love and kindness upon them. Always speak words that produce hope. Be forgiving. Seek their forgiveness. Never give up on them. Never give up on them. And when they come towards you, don't walk. Run. (laughs) Run towards them. Embrace them. Kiss them. At the end of it all, I would say this. Trust God in all of it. Trust God in all of it. There's things he's doing he hadn't told us, and we don't know, <laughs> but we trust him. And I would say this, Papas, that 1 Corinthians 16, 13 is, is the word for the day, and all of this is this. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and then this. Now get this. It's theologically astute. Act like men. Act like men. Be strong. Yeah? Fathers are men. We don't act like women. We don't act like children. We act like men. Amen? Amen. This is not a time for Twinkies. (laughs) So, thank you for enduring that. It was meant to encourage. I hope it did somewhat. Can we pray? My Lord, I thank you for being our Father, perfect in every way, whose heart is directed toward us, whose whose heart is for our good, whose heart is for us to make glory. Father, thank you for your affection. Thank you for the joy that you give and you produce. I thank you for the forgiveness of sin for us, particularly who are fathers. It is not our desire to be harmful to our family, but sometimes our sin does. But, Father, would you overcome that and may you use us to lead our homes in, in Christ-like affection and love. And may our, home, may our home be filled with joy and hope, hope in the Lord based on the gospel. 
So, Father, help us to raise up our children to love Christ, to love our wives as examples that our children would see and they would be able to say without a doubt, my papa loves my mama. We'll give you the praise and the glory for you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.